Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. I'm honored to be with you tonight. This is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen, and we bring you the stories that the mainstream media so often ignore and the perspectives that big tech so often seeks to silence. In a moment, I want to bring in Steve Cortez. He's the former senior advisor for strategy for the Trump campaign. He's host of The Steve Cortez Show. You've probably seen him on Twitter, at Steve Cortez. Steve's been talking about energy. A lot of people have. That's because Biden comes into office, and one of the first things he does is kill the Keystone XL pipeline, immediately wipes out. 11,000 jobs, threatens American energy independence. Steve recently did a chalk talk on this. Take a listen. Unfortunately, Joe Biden got right to work putting American citizens out of work. Many of them blue collar people connected to pipelines and the energy industry. Uh, This trend is consistent with his long term trend in Washington, D.C. He's been a wonderful politician for the already successful, for the credentialed elites and a miserable elected official for the middle class. Let's go to the actual data. The last time that he was in the White House as vice president, these are the eight years of Obama and Biden administration, and this is household wealth gains and losses by income percentile. So note, this is Federal Reserve data. Over those eight years, the top 10% of earners saw their household wealth increase by almost a third. Great days, salad days for the already successful. Everyone else, the other 90% of America, saw their health household wealth fall, and in some cases, precipitously. Let's look here specifically at the 40 through 60th percentile, the very definition of the middle class, a staggering 70% loss in their net worth during the Biden years as vice president. Unfortunately, he's back, and he's doing it again. All right, Steve, Vice President Biden, when he was working for Obama, you broke down the numbers about what happened to most Americans, what happened to their wealth. As soon as Biden comes into office, he kills off the Keystone XL pipeline, immediately taking out 11,000 jobs. And it looks like this is going to be another war on small businesses, American energy independence. Break this down for us a little further. You know, Eric, it reminds me of that movie Poltergeist. You remember when that little girl is looking at the TV screen and she says, they're back. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, that is the case. Although it's not funny for a lot of Americans right no. now. But sometimes if we couldn't laugh, you know, we'd cry, Eric. And unfortunately, they are back. And they, meaning the uh, globalist corporatist agenda, yeah. that is wonderful if you're the CEO or a high-ranking executive for a multinational corporation, if you're part of the Davos crowd. Right. It's not so great if you're part of what I like to call the Dayton crowd, you know, people mm-hmm. in middle America 
many of them blue collar people who have, if not direct connections, then indirect connections to the energy industry. Uh, he has gone to war against energy right out of the gate. Uh, you mentioned he's already cost thousands of jobs immediately. I right. fear that there are perhaps hundreds of thousands of jobs in total eventually that are in peril because of his attacks on energy. But this is unfortunately, as I pointed out in my chalk talk, it is consistent with his track record. Right. The media wants us to buy into a fake narrative that this is Lunch Bucket Joe from Scranton, PA. That's not the case. He is the consummate Delaware senator. He is fantastic for big business for the already successful, and the numbers prove it. And unfortunately, out of the gate, he now has even more power as president rather than as vice president. And right out of the gate, uh, he is showing us, he, he's, he's showing his hand where he intends to go. A war on energy, Eric, is a war on the middle class of America. Yeah, that's right, Steve. And I think one of the things that, that I always appreciate, and I know our, our viewers appreciate, is that you dive into the actual numbers. We actually talk about facts here. And the fact right. is that when you look at President Trump's economy, you look at who benefited from President Trump's economy, especially in those pre-coronavirus days, you had the lowest unemployment rate in the in history for African Americans, for women, for Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans. This was broad-based prosperity right. for Americans. He also, you know, is talking about energy, you know, under President Trump in 2019, you and I have talked about this before, the United States was producing 12.3 million barrels per day of oil. We'd become the leading oil producer in the world. And now Joe Biden comes in and what does he do? He socks it to the energy industry. He kills the Keystone XL pipeline. Talk, if you would, Steve, about the effect that this has on average families and how it affects their pocketbook. Right. So, you know, unfortunately, it's a one two punch because, mm -hmm. number one, it's the it's the job losses, both the direct and indirect job losses, because America is now the dominant energy superpower in the world. Yeah. Thank goodness. Largely thanks to the policies of President Trump, policies like fast tracking pipelines, all right. of that now being quickly reversed by uh, President Biden. So th that's one aspect is the income side of things, the, the, the good, stable, high paying blue collar jobs. But then the other aspect is American consumers, every consumer, even if you have no connection to the energy industry directly, uh, every American consumer going to pay more, going to pay more to heat your homes in the winter, pay more to run your car, whatever time of year. And of course, who does that hit the most? Wealthy people can handle a higher right. gas uh, price pump or gas pump price. They might not like it, but they can handle it. It's middle income people who really suffer. So it's economically speaking, it's a devastating punch to the head and to the gut. And then on top of that, Eric, of course, as you well know, as a veteran, the national security ramifications right. here, right? America being energy independent is magnificent for our national security. It's one of the reasons that Donald Trump was able to pursue an America first foreign policy of realism and restraint. We no longer have to intervene in conflicts in the Middle East because we're worried about energy supply. That's a magnificent development for the United States, and it's one that Joe Biden is now putting in jeopardy again. Yeah, it's so important, Steve. I mean, I remember when I, I first went to Iraq in 2000, and gosh, it was 2006, October of 06, we, we were heading over there. And at the time, people were talking about, how do we make America energy independent? And it seemed like it was this big, hard dream, this hard task, that it, and some people thought it would, was almost impossible. But under President right. Trump, we actually made it happen. And as you said, it actually has tremendous benefits for, for America's 
strength at home and and abroad. You know, another thing, Steve, you and I have talked about, touched on a little bit in the past, but I want to I want to draw people's attention again to to your Twitter. It's at Steve Cortez. Uh, one of the things that you've got up right now is the latest numbers showing that people's trust in the mainstream media has fallen to an all-time low. Talk about some of those numbers and what, what you're seeing. It has. It's fallen to an all-time low, and for a very good reason, by the way. The American people aren't dumb. Uh, they don't trust traditional legacy media, and they shouldn't. So the actual numbers, and this is out of Gallup, this is a poll they've been doing all the way back to the 1970s. It's now an all-time low. Only 9% of all Americans say that they trust the traditional uh, media a great deal. Among Republicans, as you might imagine, the numbers are even worse. 89% of Republicans report that they trust media uh, not very much, is the, is the quotation, or none at all. So 90% of Republicans say they just do not trust uh, corporate media in this country. And only 9% of Americans overall, not just Republicans, Americans overall, say they have a great deal of trust in media. So there's been a crisis, really, mm -hmm. in the fourth estate in this country. There's a crisis in journalism, largely an absence of journalism. Thankfully, there's platforms like yours, like Real America's Voice, people that are doing real journalism still. But there's there's not enough of it, and the American people know it, and Gallup polling reflects that reality. Yeah, and one of the things that we're also hearing from, from a lot of our viewers is how upset they are about the way the mainstream media is treating Joe Biden compared to how they treated President Trump. Even major things that, you know, President Trump would have been castigated for, they just let slide. I mean, pres you know, President Biden goes in and he signs this executive order saying that you, Steve, that your family, that all of our viewers, that if you show up at the Lincoln Memorial and you're not wearing a mask, well, you know, you're going to be in trouble. But then he doesn't need to. And he says it's because right. he's celebrating. It's this disconnect between rhetoric versus reality that I think has got a lot of people upset. I think you're exactly right. That that issue of two sets of rules is really mm -hmm. driving Americans nuts, and it should. Uh, the fact that the ink was hardly dry on the executive order that he had signed, right, to, to mandate masks everywhere on all federal property, and literally hours later, there he is, maskless. By the way, I don't believe he should be wearing a mask right. outside with his family at the Lincoln Memorial, but that's, a, that's another point right. entirely. Uh, the point here is the is the hypocrisy, is the duplicity that is on display. And you're exactly right. Corporate media, had Donald Trump done that, they would have jumped all over them. And rightly so in that case, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but Joe Biden gets a pass. Look, the, the, the praise of, of Biden so far in his new administration by legacy corporate media has just been nothing short of fawning. I mean, it really almost makes you cringe. Uh, the worst example that I know of so far, I'm sure they'll get worse, but the worst I know of is David Chalian from CNN, who is their political director. So mm -hmm. he's not just some uh, junior commentator on the network. He is the director of politics across all their platforms. Uh, he has that really cringe-inducing tape of him saying that those lights around the Lincoln Memorial, that it was Joe Biden putting his arms around America and hugging us. Uh, so that's what we unfortunately can, can look forward to, uh, if, if we can use that phrase, yeah. during these next few years. But again, it does open the door. It opens opportunity for people like you, for shows like yours, networks like yours, because the American people are hungry for real information. Yes. And they know, as that poll that we cited reflected, they know they can't trust 
Yeah, we, we actually we played we played that clip from CNN where he was talking about this and he was claiming that these lights were going out and kind of embracing America. And then you had Joe Biden talking about, you know, this is a, a day for all Americans. But of course, Americans couldn't come to the inauguration because there were fences and, and barbed wire. Steve, we've just got a few seconds left. But if you could remind our viewers where they can catch you on your radio show and online. You bet. My radio show is a 5 to 7 p.m. Central Time in Chicago, but you can stream it anywhere on AM 560. And then my Twitter is at Cortez Steve, Cortez with an S. Awesome. Well, Steve, we always appreciate you coming on. We appreciate you bringing the facts, bringing the numbers to our viewers. Again, folks, that's Steve Cortez. Check him out online. He's always got really solid, meaty, and good content. We'll stay right with us here on Actionable Intelligence. We'll be back in just a minute. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. And as we talk about here on the show, we always work to bring you the perspectives that so often big tech works to silence. Right now, I want to bring in Michael Patrick Leahy. He's host of the Tennessee Star Report with Michael Patrick Leahy. It's broadcast on Nashville's Talk Radio 98.3 and 1510 WLAC weekdays from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. He's also the editor-in-chief at the Tennessee Star, as well as an owner and publisher of several other newspapers around the country. He's a Breitbart News contributor. He's joining us now via phone. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Eric, it's great to be with you, and thank you for that uh, introduction. Yes, we do have new sites uh, now in six states, about to be seven. And if all goes well, we'll have conservative news sites in about 20 states by the end of the year. We are currently in the Tennessee Star. We opened up the Georgia Star News, the Virginia Star, the Ohio Star, the Minnesota Sun, and the Michigan Star. And we're about to open in March the North Carolina Daily Star. We present accurate news. We have statehouse reporters in every state. And we present the information that conservative and Republican legislators and and uh, gubernatorial candidates and governors want to get out but have a hard time getting out because all of the media outlets in their states yeah. are left-wing liberal. Well, you know, this is this is one of the things, Michael, we were just talking about with our with our previous guest, is that there's a new poll out, the Gallup poll that they've been doing since 1970, which shows that as of today, Americans have the lowest trust in that legacy mainstream media than they've ever had. Only 9% of Americans are saying that they have a lot of confidence in the mainstream media. And among conservatives, among Republicans, in the upper 80s, uh, of, of people who are saying that they just don't have confidence in, in the mainstream media. So again, yeah, you've got these newspapers in Tennessee, Ohio, Minnesota, Michigan, Virginia, Georgia. I mean, a lot of those states, Georgia in particular, in particular 
Chancellor. They've been they've been in the news a lot. I know you've got your finger on the pulse of what is happening uh, around the country and that you cover local news. I, you all guys also cover some of the big national stories. One of those big national stories I wanted to get your thoughts on is one we were just talking about with our our previous guests, and that's about Biden's seeming war on energy. He came into office and immediately he kills the Keystone XL pipeline. You've, you've got another important story on your site about Biden and what he's doing to the energy industry. Please tell our tell our listeners and viewers about yeah, that. He's going to stop uh, all uh, oil, natural gas leases on any federal properties, which is going to do nothing but increase the price of oil and natural gas. Uh, Biden's policies, I, I think, are a bit schizophrenic, right? He says one thing mm -hmm. and he does another. For instance, he says, let's unify the country. And then he goes through a whole series of policies to attack Donald Trump, to support right. this farce of an impeachment, to, uh, 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 to attack the 75 million people who supported Donald Trump. So there's that. Then, then as you know, he says, well, let's improve the economy. Well, and, he, and he takes actions that are going to destroy the mm -hmm. economy. He's declared war on the fossil fuel industry, and for no good reason. It's going to hurt jobs. There's no question about it. Yeah, and, and Michael, when, you, when you're talking with folks, and I know you do on your radio show, and I know you hear from people every day, because one of the things that you do on, on your newspapers is that you often publish and highlight letters that you get from people um, around the country. One of the things I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, because you are, you're in media, you're, you're with radio, you've, you've done, you've been a contributor for Breitbart, you, you own newspapers. What's happening in this country with the First Amendment? Yeah, very good question. You know, the First Amendment is in jeopardy because, as you know, of the big tech control mm -hmm. uh, of uh, social media through Facebook, Google, Twitter, and even Amazon subsidiary AWS that uh, controls these servers upon which uh, sites like Parler used to be hosted. Um, and that, of course, is a, a monopoly, oligopoly, that the congressional uh, the law that passed by Congress in 1996 mm -hmm. with uh, on uh, communications decency in Section 230 essentially provided them immunity from prosecution for you know censoring folks. There's a very interesting series of actions going on at the state level, at the state level, that I think that uh, uh, could give courts a good reason to declare that Section 230 unconstitutional. You probably have seen this, Eric. In North Dakota, yep. six state legislators have introduced legislation that would allow residents of North Dakota who've been censored by Facebook and Google and Twitter to sue those states. Now, we had on our program um, a New York lawyer who was defending Facebook and Google and said, well, can't do that because there's always a supremacy there's always a supremacy of federal law over state law. Uh, his name is Akiva Cohen. They made the argument. But there's an even better argument that I think these states are going to be pushing, and that is the following, that Section 230, in essence, combined with congressional regulatory authority over Google mm -hmm. and Facebook mm -hmm. and Twitter, turns those entities into state actors. Right. And that, that law allows them to suppress First Amendment rights in a way that Congress can't. 
be very interesting to see the theme that we're getting from our listeners. And our listeners are, you know, more of the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump, not the people who voted for Joe Biden. We have a few of them that listen, but mostly it's it's Trump supporters. They're saying, you know what? It's time to turn the page on the old way of doing things. And it's time for the states to reassert their sovereignty and take back those powers of the national federal government as usurped. Yeah, and Michael, talk a little bit, because you guys do cover state houses, and again, that's something that you know a lot of national newspapers uh, don't do. Because you cover state houses, uh, talk with our national audience a little bit about what you're seeing there. So many people were so upset after the election because they felt like Republicans at the state level really didn't take the action that they needed to do to ensure the integrity of the election. What are you, what are you hearing from folks around the country? Well, that frustration is uh, abounds in the country. And let me explain it this way. Uh, if you've got a few minutes, I'll talk about yeah. what I see as the, 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 the new next phase of the constitutional conservative movement. The first phase was the Tea Party movement. Right. It started in 2009. We had many grassroots leaders around the country united around three core principles, fiscal responsibility, free markets, and constitutionally limited government. That uh, basically transformed... Uh, into the Make America Great Again movement, Mm -hmm. which had one leader, Donald Trump, and added American sovereignty and free and fair trade, but we kind of gave short shrift to fiscal responsibility. Well, the events of the breach of the Capitol on January 6th, uh, uh, because you can get into who caused it, who was at fault, it's true that there were a number of, of Trump supporters who were in the crowd that breached the Capitol. Uh, What happens as a result of that is that means the mega movement lost its moral high ground. And now it's time to to move to the third phase, which I call founders federalism. And that means we need lots of leaders at the state level in those 35 states where freedom is still possible. We need state legislators. We need governors, gubernatorial candidates, donors, grassroots uh, leaders to coalesce and to aggressively push back and take those authorities and powers that have been usurped by the national federal government. And this is what happened um, in the election when state legislatures in five states, Republican-controlled legislators, failed to exercise their constitutional authority. They could have. They just didn't because they didn't have the leadership. We're talking about Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, where there were a number of unlawful election procedures, the state legislatures, and though the leadership in many of those state legislatures was weak, the state legislatures could have, should have held special sessions, and they could have put forward alternative slates of electors. They chose not to do that, or they didn't think they could. This is an area where uh, people need, are going to be focusing on state legislators to be more aggressive in in defending their rights and privileges going forward. 
Yeah, and Michael, I think a lot of people, one of the, the things we've talked about that on this program before, and what we hear from a lot of our viewers, and I, I'd imagine you hear from a lot of your listeners, is that when people look now at politics, they're not seeing it any longer as Democrats versus Republicans. They're seeing it as the people versus the swamp, and they really want to make sure that they have legislators at all levels, elected officials who are willing to actually go in and fight for them and fight for some of those those freedoms. What are what are you hearing? Oh, I, I, that's exactly what I hear. And in fact, if you look at the runoff elections in Georgia, uh, where the Democrats won by you know one percent to two percent over the Republican candidates, in part, in part they won because a lot of conservatives and Republicans said, what are you doing? Why are you not Republican leadership? Mm -hmm. uh, the Secretary of State there, the governor, even the Speaker of the House of Rep State House of Representatives. Why are you not aggressively pursuing the case of state's uh, authority here and challenging these unlawful procedures? Didn't happen. And then uh, the, the two Republican candidates were not, I, I think, the most uh, uh, aggressive yeah. or articulate defenders of states' rights. So a lot of people in Georgia... Uh, who are constitutional conservatives, just weren't interested in participating. I think that needs to be turned around, and the energy needs to be focused in state legislatures, particularly so in the So, Michael, we're coming, we're coming up against a break. I want to remind everybody to, to follow you uh, and get your newspapers uh, online. Again, folks, that's Michael Patrick Leahy. I want to also remind you guys, tune in tomorrow night, because Thursday, January 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern time, there's a Just the News special right here. It's called Hold the Line. Renew, rebuild, and resurge right here on Real America's Voice. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. Here we work to bring you the stories that the mainstream media so often doesn't cover. And we're able to do that because we have a fantastic team of reporters here at Just the News, including Daniel Payne. He's one of the Just the News correspondents, and he's been reporting on the coronavirus, on COVID-19 for a while now. He's had a couple big stories up. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Eric, always, always good to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first of all, if you could walk our viewers through the story that you have up about hospitalization. I can, yeah. And you know, as you said, I have been reporting on this for a while. It's been, I think, almost exactly a year now. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's felt like uh, five or ten years at times. But right. one of the things that we've been consistently reporting on uh, over the past year of this pandemic is the level of hospitalizations in the country, mm -hmm. uh, hospitalizations due to COVID. And that's been a critical metric by which public health officials have, have judged the course of the pandemic here and around the world. Um, and what we saw over the past several months is uh, significantly increasing numbers of individuals who are hospitalized with a positive COVID-19 test. Mm -hmm. But what's not been very well reported is that over the past several weeks, we've actually seen a market drop in those hospitalizations. They've been going up since uh, the fall, I think October, November. 
But we have seen over the past 14 days, maybe a little more, uh, a pretty steady decline after a, a high peak of, um, I think, around 120,000. So that's not getting a whole lot of attention. But what it suggests is that the current surge in cases may have rolled and we may be on the downswing of it. Good. And Daniel, what is the current analysis? And there are many different viewpoints and different analyses, uh, I'm sure, that, that people are bringing to this. But what's your sense for what is behind those numbers? Well, you know, it's it's been actually kind of difficult to get a handle on that data because one thing that that we've uh, we've struggled to sort of uh, quantify over the course of the pandemic is how many individuals are hospitalized because of COVID, because they are seriously ill with the disease, versus how many are hospitalized and simply test positive for the right. virus while in the hospital. Now, you know, hospitals and medical officials are testing just about everybody that walks through their doors. It's very common. And we also know that there are there are uh, implications of, of issues with those tests being oversensitive and potentially picking up dead fragments of the virus. This is something that Dr. Anthony Fauci himself has admitted can happen. So, what we've been trying to get from health officials over the past year is, is an actual number of individuals who are hospitalized directly because of the virus. And except for a few cases of state level data, that information is, has really been extremely difficult to find. So it's really kind of hard to get a full grasp on, on what those numbers mean on an official level. Yeah, and the numbers obviously are critical from a public policy standpoint to make those decisions. Uh, we'll also note, you know, we've talked on this program with other guests that, you know, even the coronavirus death numbers, sometimes there's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not someone is dying of other causes, but they also had coronavirus at the at the time. Now, speaking of, of public policy, Daniel, you're obviously covering what the Joe Biden administration has been doing. Uh, talk with our viewers a little bit about your, your reporting there. Yeah, so we covered uh, last week a, a, a fairly uh, kind of jaw-dropping admission by Joe Biden himself. Uh, you know, he ran on a very strong campaign of doing something about the virus. He said that Don, Donald Trump and the Trump mm -hmm. administration were not confronting this virus head on. They weren't doing everything that was needed to address it. Uh, and, and his message was that he had a plan, he was going to enact it, and it was going to make a difference. But at a press conference uh, recently, he did admit, he, he, he claimed that there is actually nothing the U.S. can do over the next several months to counteract the trajectory of this virus, that it's going to do what it's going to do, and that it's set in place, and that there's, there's really no mitigation measures that they can impose, according to him, that will have much effect. So that was kind of a, a, a stunning about face from a candidate, excuse me, a politician who, as a presidential candidate, uh, talked a very big game about his COVID response. Yeah, and Dean, I think the natural question that it raises for, for a lot of people, and I'm curious if there's any uh, response to this from the, from the Biden administration thus far, is like, if there's nothing that you can do, then why are kids having to stay at home? Why are businesses having to stay closed? Why are all of these things that a lot of people feel like are taking away essential freedoms, costing jobs, why are you continuing with those policies if from your standpoint, you know, from the Biden administration standpoint, there's nothing that they can, that they can do? Any, any uh, response there? 
You know, that's a good question. It's a question that, you know, tens of millions of Americans are asking themselves because uh, the fact is that that normal life, modern life has been disrupted to a, to a major degree over the past year. Uh, we've seen widespread business closures, the shuttering of schools, uh, mm -hmm. you know, children falling behind significantly in their studies, uh, a, a crisis of mental health across the country yes. in children and in adults, uh, substance abuse, all of those things. So with all of those negative effects, um, if what we're being told is that, uh, you know, at least several months out, maybe possibly more, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, that's that's kind of an incredible thing to say yes. after so many mitigation measures that have so uh, uh, seriously disrupted life in the country. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's a really important point that obviously everybody who's watching at home knows and they know in their bones, they know it in their family, they've seen it in their pocketbooks, that the, these measures that have been taken have had a real social, emotional, mental health economic effect on Americans. So it is. I appreciate your reporting on that. It's a major, uh, major admission. And again, folks, you can see all of Daniel's stories on the coronavirus at justthenews.com. Now, Daniel, one other really important story that you've got out that I want to talk with you about has to do with the World Health Organization. Let our, let our viewers know what's going on there. Yeah, so uh, we covered this uh, uh, just recently that the uh, World Health Organization is perhaps unsurprisingly mounting an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Now, this is one of the critical questions of where this virus came from. We know that it appears to have arisen in Wuhan, China, um, but uh, detecting actually where it first, uh, you know, broke into human infection is, is, is going to be a critical matter for public health officials. The World Health Organization is conducting a, a team-led investigation into this matter. And one of the individuals tapped uh, to head that team um, is a man named, uh, is Dr. Peter Daschak. He's actually a, um, a uh, director of a nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance. Mm -hmm. And that organization received funding from the federal government, from the NIH. And some of that funding through EcoHealth Alliance was directed to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which as you may know, has been at the center of some controversy over the past year right. for its implications of being, you know, just a mile or so from where the outbreak is said to have taken place. So we're not quite sure what to make of that. We're going to be following it very closely. So again, but just break down the facts for viewers. So the, the World Health Organization, which our viewers will remember, uh, President Trump withdrew from, they are starting an initiative to look into the origins of the coronavirus. And one of the people who they've tapped to lead that team was actually the head of a nonprofit organization that was sending money to Wuhan. Is that is that right? Right, and specifically to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has been right. the subject of State Department concern that their security measures, their biosecurity measures, their containment measures were not up to snuff in the months and years leading up to the pandemic. So it's going to be really interesting to see uh, what they discover uh, in investigating uh, if the virus came from a wet market, as the Chinese government claims, mm -hmm. or possibly it may have emerged from that lab or another lab. Good. And Daniel, you know, when we talk about public health, uh, you and I have talked in the past and when we just just talked briefly about all of the other effects that this is having on public health. It's having an effect on mental health. It's having an effect on suicide. It's having an effect on delayed doctor's appointments because for so long people didn't actually go to their doctor. It had a had an effect on, on elective uh, surgeries. Who right now, and because I know you're, you're digging into this, who right now is doing the best research into the other public health effects on the American population of all of the 
efforts that we've taken to mitigate the coronavirus? You know, right now, that sort of investigation is still in its infancy because mm -hmm. we've really never had a crisis like this right. in the United States, uh, not just a public health crisis. We've had plenty of those, but one in which uh, so much of, of society has been shut down for so long. So, you know, we're doing a lot of investigation into that in Just the News. There's, there's a ton of data to pour over from the past year and going into this year. One place that's really sounding the alarm is, you know, crisis hotlines, suicide mm -hmm. hotlines substance abuse hotlines. These people are on the front lines and they are saying these numbers are astronomical. We've never seen anything like it. We've never seen overdose levels this high. We've never seen, you know, emergency calls this high. Child advocate groups are publishing these numbers. So right now, rather than any sort of official uh, uh, central place where this is being gathered, although we're trying to do that, uh, you're just seeing, you know, frontline workers in these industries uh, raising serious alarms about what's happening and what is to come. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's going to be so important, and I know you and the team are, are working on this, is that as we dig into those stories, we do get the numbers. Um, I mean, we know from looking back, I know this from the work that I've done with veterans, when you look back historically, even at the economic recession in 2008, people saw increased suicide numbers. There is a correlation between economic recessions, economic depressions, and suicide. We've had millions of Americans who've lost their uh, jobs here, but we've also seen an unprecedented change in the way that kids are out there socializing. Not all, some of them not even able to go to school, some of them not, not able to, to play sports. Well, as ever, Daniel, we appreciate you and the entire Just the News team doing this work on the coronavirus. And again, folks, a reminder, all of Daniel's stories are available at justthenews.com. And he, like all of the reporters at justthenews.com, put their original source documents online so that you can actually see those. Well, we will be right back with more of Actionable Intelligence just after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. Joining us now to break down some of the biggest stories at JustTheNews.com is Joe Weber. He is the news editor at Just The News. Joe, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. You bet. So last night on the show, John Solomon broke the news here that he was going to have this big story up on the website, and now it's there all of our viewers can go out and get it at justthenews.com. It's obstruction boomerang. The FBI knew that the DOJ was preparing to fire Comey long before Trump ordered it. It's a John Solomon story. Break down for our viewers what's inside. Uh, real quick, just a very quick backstory. President yeah. Trump, he left office, uh, declassified a bunch of documents. And John was one of the first reporters uh, to get his hands on them. And he's been deconstructing what is about a foot high worth of these documents and just breaking one story after another. One of the stories that he came out with um, last night that to which you were referring was about this idea that the Justice Department or, knew that, was, that they were going to fire Comey uh, before that, it, that even President Trump 
uh, pull the trigger. And Comey had been um, something of a, I don't know, rogue or loose cannon there for a while within the department. You take a look at, he opens up this investigation very late in the presidential campaign to investigate Hillary Clinton's uh, emails on her secret server and just as Secretary of State closes it. Within weeks before the vote, he reopens it because there was allegedly some uh, of those emails on uh, Abedin's, um, on her computer, does that again. Then opens up this investigation, the Trump collusion, uh, when he presumably, or when look all, all evidence, there was really nothing there. Right. Uh, there's also another interesting, crazy fact, really, in there. It's um, Deputy um, Attorney General Rod Rosenstein willing to wear a wire to go into the White House uh, to get information. This is evidently the ones where Peter Strzok and uh, another guy went into the um, White House and talked to then a National Security, Security Director, uh, Michael Flynn. Uh, advisor, rather, National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, and got him uh, to acknowledge that he had spoken to uh, a Russian ambassador. And yeah, more to come. And, and, and it just, it just seemed, it seems like, you know, when we start putting all of this together, and again, John Solomon and you and the team are digging through all of these documents, there's just this incredibly tangled web of misconduct. I mean, as John uh, reported when these uh, documents were first being declassified, that he has, in Christopher Steele's own words, admitting that the whole reason for the Steele dossier was to drive attention away from Hillary Clinton's email scandal, right? And that, of course, became the, the basis for the whole Russia collusion hoax. And then they wanted to go after President Trump for obstruction, but it turns out that the FBI knew that the Department of Justice was looking to fire Comey even before Trump ordered that it that it was done. Now, yeah. another another big story that you've got uh, out on the site right now is that Pelosi is renewing her push for election reform, but a lot of folks in the GOP are calling it a power grab. Well, yeah, this is HR one, and I, as most of your um, viewers know, that is the first bill in the new congressional um, session. Mm -hmm. So that just suggests that this is the number one priority uh, for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the Democrat-controlled uh, House. So what we really have here is she's suggesting that um, one of the things is that, you know, dark, we have to get rid of dark money in politics. And this is particularly when you can make donations to a, a nonprofit and then that goes into a PAC. But, you know, if you take a look at the numbers that just came out, that largely a lot, a lot of the money that finance um, Joe Biden's winning presidential campaign came from dark money as quote unquote dark money as well. Yeah, I think Joe what Biden. they were calling dark money, the Democrats were, Joe Biden was, was 145 some million, some million dollars from, from what That's we see, see thus far. Just complete, right. you know, hypocrisy there. Sorry, keep going. No, not at all. That's the point I was trying to make and thank you on that. The other thing that she suggested that she's tried to tie this all to the January 26th, I mean, the January 6th insurgence of the, uh, uh, U.S. Capitol building, and I'm just really not sure how she's making going to connect the dots on that. Uh, but nevertheless, and she's tried. But the re congressional Republicans have just said, "No, I just there's you know I can't see there any connection to that, and how you can really uh, make that argument." Um, so we'll see. It's HR one is a very big bill, and she certainly made a priority out of it.
Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things you and I have talked about before is that there is obviously this big tech uh, crackdown on conservative dissent. We've had many guests on the show who've talked about what's happened to them personally, what's happened to companies that they've been involved in. I think one of the reasons why JustTheNews.com has been so successful, why Real America's Voice has been so successful, is that people want to get and have the opportunity to have uh, conservative opinions heard. There's a story up right now, though, with possibly a glimmer of hope, that experts are saying that there's a legal counteroffensive against the big tech crackdown on conservative dissent. Uh, what's inside of that counteroffensive? Okay, we, I think everybody saw this coming. It wasn't only, it was just a matter of time before uh, big tech continued to try to um, censor, you know, conservative voice on media, as you know, that they banned President Trump permanently. Uh, some other people just most recently, I think it uh, was the My the My Pillow founder who's going to perhaps run a bit, make a bid for the uh, Minnesota governorship. And what's really happening, they're saying that you're going to do this and then you're going to get some, um, you're going to face some suits about a fr the silencing of uh, freedom of speech. You're also going to run into some fiduciary um, uh, cases because nevertheless, if you have financial responsibilities with people, like they said that, you know, um, the parlor being taken off uh, America, I mean, Amazon Web Services uh, was, boom, a million dollars lost in the, in the very first day and for investors. So they're running a whole gamut, they face a gamut of legal consequences, potential legal consequences uh, from continuing um, to do this. Yeah, I mean, look, people saw immediately when Twitter came out and they banned President Trump and then they started banning other conservatives, a big drop in their stock prices because yeah. they were essentially saying that they were kicking off one of their biggest users in President Trump and that they were actually banning a lot of Americans uh, from, the, from the platform. Now, Joe, another big story that we have right out uh, covers the first phone call between President Biden and Putin. Uh, give, our, give our viewers a sense for what's inside there. Well, you know, the always interesting thing about that is you can never obviously be privy to what went on, but mm -hmm. uh, we had sort of a readout from the uh, White House uh, Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, that said that uh, Biden went through a litany of things that he didn't like um, that Putin had done, particularly with regard to uh, what appears to be the hacking of federal agencies here just a couple months ago, um, the treatment of the uh, his critic, uh, the dissident who was poisoned, um, and additional election meddling. Uh, so, but we're never really sure what you know what mm -hmm. went on in that conversation, what Putin might have said he didn't like about him, and that's you know that's the other side of the uh, coin that. I would like to, uh, everyone I think would like to know. Obviously, Putin and uh, Biden are not friends or have never been political allies with this. So, I, you know, they will have a difficult relationship and it doesn't appear to have gotten off to a good start anyway. Yeah, and it also sounds like from from what we're we're reading that while Joe Biden might have said that he didn't like anything, there were no specific actions that he said that he was going to take at this at this yes. time. At least not not in not what we're hearing from this phone call. Is that right? So it was just kind of talking, right? Not rather than a, a plan of action. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. You know. Yeah. Good. Now, there's another story that we have up, again, getting a lot of interest, that the Biden Justice Department has rescinded Trump's zero tolerance enforcement policy against illegal immigration. Uh, what do we know? Yeah, well, this is interesting. This is really sort of one of these, like uh, one of the many of the first week 
uh, executive orders mm -hmm. and memos uh, that Biden has issued uh, to sort of, you know, walk back a lot of the Trump administration policies. We looked at, uh, you know, Keystone. He did mm -hmm. that on the first day and he's come, come after immigration. This was this quote unquote zero tolerance as it, 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 the mainstream media has referred to it, in which the president said anybody comes across the border, regardless of the situation, illegally is going to be detained. Now, mm -hmm. uh, that had a lot of um, brushback because a lot of times people were coming over with their children and the children had to be taken to health and human services to take care of them while their um, parents were receiving, you know, you know, hearings. And nevertheless, we can't cross, you know, while they got a lot of backlash on that, you can't go to go to jail and have your child with you. There simply wasn't anything uh, that, you know, the U.S. could do about that. It was a little maligned on that. And the other thing is that this is basically a lot of people are saying this is just sort of a uh, symbolic move because, Although several thousand, several hundred people, uh, children were detained, the, the Trump administration curtailed that, and in, in light of the um, the public disc, discourse over, you know, their their displeasure for that, and because of the pandemic. The other thing that's interesting that we had talked mm -hmm. earlier before the show is that the um, the Biden administration had also told the um, prison systems that they no longer want them to use private. Uh, prisons to house, detain, um, keep uh, prisoners. Now, if you would connect the dots a little bit here, it was these private uh, facilities that were keeping the children while their parents were facing this hearing. So um, it suggests that there was, um, they're also dissatisfied with that aspect of it too. It's just coincidental that they both ha really happened within 24 hours. Wow. At least coincidentally. All right, Joe, and just time for one more, one more story that's true. Uh, I think a lot of people are finding unbelievable, but the, the San Francisco School Board has agreed to remove the names of 44 Americans from schools. And the people whose names they are taking off of the schools, well, it's Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and 20 seconds or less. What's, what's happening there, Joe? Yeah, they voted Tuesday uh, night, 6 to 1. They've been considering this since um, mid-October. This is all sort of this backlash out of the social justice protests of the summer that suggested that um, a lot of people, uh, early Americans and others, um, had supported slavery and therefore um, they should be censored and have their names taken off government buildings, wow. uh, army forts, and, and this now is going to cost Abraham the Lincoln. Now Abraham no. Lincoln can't have his name on a, on a yeah. school building. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate you and your incredible team of reporters. Well, folks, that's it for actionable intelligence for tonight. But stay right here because Dr. Gina has an amazing show coming up on Dr. Gina Primetime.